0: i have never been more excited to get to today because after listening to one another all week i am ready to hear from the lord i have never been more passionate about the phrase we say every week open your Bible and uh, we don't just want to carry it around we want to open it we want to listen as God speaks to us let me ask you this As you're finding your way there how's 2020 going for you um, I don't know about you but it is a strange year in human history I saw an email this week from Ligan Duncan who's the president of Reformed Theological Seminary and uh, he said this he said 2020 started off like 1974 with a presidential impeachment. And then it quickly became 1918, a global pandemic. And then it turned into 1929 with a financial recession slash depression. And now it seems that we are reliving 1968. Uh, I've heard about 1968. I was born in 1967 and I've watched documentaries on 1968. I don't have to watch documentaries anymore. I just have to turn on the news. And apparently we are right back in that place in human history. Uh, If you're like me, 2020 has led you to ask some very soul questions. questions like, is this the end of the world? I mean, with the COVID crisis and the rioting in the streets and the injustice that we've seen and and people jockeying for position to tell us what to do, um, I don't know about you, but I identify with the very last verse of the Bible, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Um, Recently, uh, the church was gracious and gave me about three months to go away and just rest, and one of the things I wanted to do during that three-month journey was really dive in to what theologians call eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end times, and the Bible has a lot to say about the end times, but I've never really known where I fit. I don't know what charts I like, and I don't know about times and dates and those different things, so I really dove into that because I had extra time. I read mountains of books, and I was really enjoying. That was around February. And we got to March, and I realized why I needed to know something about the end times, because I didn't need to read books anymore. It just seemed like I just needed to turn on the news. Um, And if you're like me, uh, and you're about my age, you may have been... Uh, Educated or introduced to some theology back in the 1970s or 80s. I first came to Christ in 1982, and one of the very first books I read was this little book. I pulled this book off of my shelf um, this week, and it's a book by Hal Lindsey, and it's entitled "The 1980s Countdown to Armageddon." And when you open it up, just the very the the very first title page here, it just simply says. It says, I have watched current events push us toward the climax of history that the prophets in the Old Testament foretold. The decade of the 1980s very well could be the last decade as we know it. I don't know about you, but 1980 is looking pretty good compared to the 2020s, and uh, maybe we should go back to the 19. Well, the anticipation that every generation of Christian has for the return of Jesus Christ is actually something that is very, very healthy. And before we jump into what Jesus said about these end times, uh, I didn't. I told you to open your Bible. Didn't tell you where. Open your Bible to Luke chapter 21, and Jesus is going to answer some questions that we might have about the end times. And before we jump into that, let me just say that any discussion about the end times should be done with incredible humility. Good men, good theologians that love and affirm the inspiration, the inerrancy, the authority of Scripture have debated for centuries about what the end times are going to be like. And so as we dive into this, just just know that. Um, And we're going to approach this. The key to studying the end times in the Bible is not to require the Bible to be more specific about the end times than it actually is. The Bible doesn't answer all of our questions. It doesn't satisfy all of our curiosity. But that doesn't mean that it's not clear. It is clear, and we're going to see what Jesus had to say to His disciples in the first century about this topic. Here's what all Bible-believing Christians can confidently agree on in relation to the second coming of Jesus Christ. We believe and expectantly await the glorious, visible, personal return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is actually in our doctrinal statement as a church. And it's not just something that that we debate about. It's not just some theology that we hold loosely. Listen, the promise of Christ's return is essential to living faithfully as a Christian you cannot and you will not live a victorious, obedient, worshipful, courageous, enduring Christian life without reminding yourself daily that Jesus is coming soon. Our hope of the soon return of Jesus Christ is what gives us the ability to process the sadness and the injustice and the violence and the hatred and the brokenness of this world with all of its. Death and all of its disease and all of its disappointment without a conscious assurance of the soon return of Jesus Christ, our hearts will spiral into fear and hatred and anxiety. And foolishness. And we can avoid all that by saturating our minds with the confidence that Christ is coming soon. He will bring hope and peace and courage and discernment. And so that is what returns when we think about the return of Christ. The Bible's not silent about it. Of the 330 Messianic uh, prophecies in the Bible, 220 of those prophecies refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ, not just the first. Over 1,500 verses in the Old Testament are dedicated to the second coming. Out of 46 of the Old Testament prophets, 10 of those prophets spoke of Christ's first coming. 36 of those prophets referred to Christ's second coming. Jesus spoke about His second coming 20 times, and it's mentioned 50 times in total in the New Testament. And just consider how the Bible ends Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And that is a prayer that we can pray daily as we assure ourselves of the soon return of Jesus Christ. Assuring ourselves of Christ's second coming, about what will happen then and there, gives us confidence to live in the here and the now so let's dive into here and remember we're just simply going verse by verse through the gospel of Luke we're about two years into this journey now and as we open up in Luke chapter 21 we're reading about the last week of Jesus life and the setting in which we to about to read this is Jesus has made his way to Jerusalem where he will give his life as a sacrifice for sin and the disciples that follow him Ask him a question. So picking up in verse 5 of Luke 21, it says this, And while some were speaking of the temple, underline the word temple there in verse 5, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said. Now let me just pause right there. It's impossible to understand the conversation Jesus is going to have with his disciples about the end times without understanding the priority of temple worship to a first-century follower of Jesus Christ. These were Jewish men who knew the Old Testament teaching About the meeting place of God and it's hard for us to understand that because we don't think in terms of going to a temple and and we we get into trouble if we think of a church as being a temple we'll unpack that here in just a minute but let me just kind of briefly survey what the Bible says about this particular temple Uh, the Bible opens up with a story about God and man dwelling together in the exact same place on earth and yet Heaven, where God dwells, and earth was one harmonious relationship. And of course, Adam and Eve sinned and it broke this harmony between God and man. And so, as we read from that point on, it's it's as if we read that God has his space in heaven, man has his space on earth, and man longs for those two places the place of God and the place of man to once again come together. And as the story unfolds, God meets with a man named Moses at a burning bush. God appears to him and tells him, instructs him to build a tabernacle which would be the meeting place between God and man, the only exclusive place on earth where man could meet with God. And we're told about how Moses would enter into that tent and meet with God as if he was his friend. And his face shone, and the glory of God came in that moment between one man and the one God. But there was even more after all of that. And finally, King David established his kingdom in Israel and he wanted to build a temple, a dwelling place between God and man. God wouldn't let him do it, but he allowed his son Solomon to do that. And God gives him very intricate instructions about the decor and the artwork and on the inside, the dwelling place where God and man would meet. There would be palm trees and fruit and you would think, why is he describing a beach. He's not describing a beach. He's describing the original meeting place between God and man, the Garden of Eden. It, and it was not only uh, pointing back to the Garden of Eden, it was pointing forward to the dwelling place between God and man that will happen when Christ returns and makes all things right. And so the disciples here... meeting with Jesus at the physical temple. Now, this temple that was built by King Solomon was actually destroyed in the year 586 BC, so around 500-600 years before Christ arrived. The Babylonians invaded, they ransacked the temple, conquered Israel, drug them off into captivity, they burned and destroyed that temple that Solomon had built. Seventy years later, The Israelites were allowed to return, and the first thing they did is they rebuilt the temple. Uh, Through the ministries of Ezra the priest and Nehemiah uh, and others that constructed that temple there, the temple was rebuilt. And yet, when it was finished, everybody was disappointed because it was not as impressive as what was remembered about the first temple. And so, you would expect the glory of God to come as it did in the original temple, and it just doesn't. And Everybody's left longing for more. That's the way the Old Testament ends. Now, about a hundred years before Christ shows up on the scene, the Romans rule now in Israel. And the governor there, the king, King Herod, was a builder, and he saw this of an unimpressive temple that the Jews had built and so you know what he did he began to expand it he made it more glorious he 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 widened it he made it taller it was it was amazing it was it was known as the one of the greatest structures on the face of the earth Christ shows up his followers are with him they go to what we call Herod's temple because it was expanded And the disciples are amazed at how beautiful it was. And they start making comments. Jesus, notice how incredible this building is. Look how big it is, how wonderful it is. And Jesus says to them in verse 6, He says, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be one stone left upon another that... Uh, that will not be thrown down. And they ask Him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, it's a little vague there about what they're asking, but the Gospel of Matthew gives some clarity. What they were actually asking was, was this question. Matthew fills in some gaps for us. He says, tell us, these disciples, tell us when these things will be, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The word coming there in our English translation comes from the Greek word underneath it, and the word is parousia. And it literally refers to when a king would arrive and at his inauguration take his seat upon the throne to rule and reign over his kingdom. And that is exactly what the followers of Jesus were expecting to happen in the next few hours. Um, they're expecting Jesus to say, uh, uh, maybe this weekend, maybe maybe tomorrow morning, we might uh, invade and have this incredible military conquest over the Romans and, and kick them out, and then we can all rule and reign in peace. That's what the disciples are expecting from Jesus as He's entering into Jerusalem. The disciples had no concept of a second coming of Jesus Christ. When we read this, we we know He came the first time, and we're expecting Him to come again. And so we have to be careful not to read more into it as 21st century readers than the first century readers that Luke was actually writing to. And so these disciples are confused. What Jesus is about to do is completely deconstruct their expectations for what Jesus' kingdom and kingship is going to look like and actually when it's going to come. As a matter of fact, shortly after this, you have to remember just just as this was happening, it was somewhere around the year AD 30. So this was the 30s, not the 1930s, but the original 30s. And in the year 70, in the 70s, the Romans came and conquered Jerusalem. They destroyed this temple, just as Jesus said would take place. just 40 years after Jesus predicted it, it happened exactly as it unfolded. And that was the first sign of the coming of Christ. Now, as we talk about these signs, and we're going to unveil, unveil about six of them here very quickly, uh, we need to understand that each of these signs that Jesus mentions, it has a past fulfillment, it has... A present fulfillment and when I say present not present for us present for the readers that Jesus was currently speaking to in the text and then it has a future one day occurrence that we all are looking forward to and so you have to again read it through the eyes of the original readers in the first century and then interpret it because God has preserved it for us to read in the 21st century as well. Let me just give you the first sign. The first sign that Jesus gives for the end of the age is the destruction of temple worship. And that's exactly what happened in the year A.D. 70 when the Romans invaded. That was the end of temple worship. That was the end of animal sacrifice. That was the end of the priesthood. It was the end of the Old Covenant. Because Jesus inaugurated a new covenant as our new king. Now, he expands on this later in the chapter. I'm going to go a little bit out of order here, but if you look down to verse 20, he gives an expansion on what he's talking about would happen in the year AD 70. He says in verse 20, he says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near a divine deconstruction then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and it really gets really bad It says let those who are out in the country enter it and verse 22 and, uh, for these are days of vengeance this is God's wrath and God's vengeance coming on Old Testament Israel who rejected their Messiah and rejected uh, their King and this was the wrath of God coming on His rebellious people. These are days of vengeance to fulfill all that was written. And He's referring to all of the Old Testament prophecies that predicted this would happen. You can read about it in the Old Testament. Verse 23, Alas, for women who were pregnant and for those who were nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And of course he's speaking uh, to the majority of us who were Gentiles, not Jewish, but um, the times of the Gentiles, what, what Jesus was doing here was opening the door for those outside of ethnic Israel to come and form a multi-ethnic family of God to experience, the presence of God outside of a specific place on earth, and we'll unpack that here in just a minute. Jesus would become the new and the better temple. The purpose for Old Testament temple worship would be fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus would become the high priest. Jesus would become the sacrificial lamb. Jesus would literally become the meeting place between God the Father and sinful man. And so the very purpose of the temple in the Old Testament was to point forward to Jesus Christ himself. And so as we come, we no longer need a building we don't need a meeting place in order to meet with God if Jesus lives in you the Bible says You are God's temple. That's true individually of your body. Your body is the temple of God. So if Jesus inhabits you, you have the presence of God within you, and we meet with Him simply because we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And then collectively, as a redeemed people, we also form a people group that can be called the household of God, the meeting place between God and man. Now, if you've been around Gospel City long enough, you may have heard, we're building a building. And one day we're going to open the building very soon, and we're going to gather together for worship. And I, I, as I was reading through this, I just was reminded, and I want to remind you that God can deconstruct buildings when buildings become a substitute for the true worship of God. God doesn't need buildings to accomplish His purposes. And we've been building this new building as a gathering place for worship. It's not a temple. Don't call it a temple. Sometimes I mess up and I call it a sanctuary. It's not even a sanctuary. It's a worship center. It's a gathering place for worship. And God can deconstruct that building as easily as He's allowed us to construct it If we ever begin to practice empty ceremonial religion and think somehow because my body is physically present in a building, then somehow that makes me closer to God, God can tear down buildings, and He's done it over and over and over. If I think that simply because I'm in the place of worship, I'm worshiping, I've missed the whole purpose for worship. Hypocritical external religious exercise in beautiful buildings invites divine deconstruction. The more impressive the building, the more dangerous the deception of shallow religious activity. Worship doesn't happen in a building. If the worship is not happening, in the hearts of those who are in the building. A a place cannot substitute for a meeting with God. And that's what we're being told here in the Old Testament. The the hypocritical ceremonial religion of the, the rebellious Jewish people they lost the heart of what it meant to have a meeting with God. And that's the first sign that Jesus gives. He's like, that temple is going to go away. There's going to be a new covenant, a new meeting place with God. And here's the second thing he mentions in verse 8. He says, and he said, See to it that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am He. He's referring to the prophesied Messiah from the Old Testament. And apparently there's going to be imposters that are going to pretend to be substitute saviors. That's the second sign that Jesus refers to here as a sign of His coming, His parousia. The kingdom is coming near when you find people offering to fix it. It could be political saviors that actually... Use Jesus' name is what it says here. It says, um, people are saying, I am He, and the time is at hand. Don't go after them. So they're using the name of Jesus. Maybe they're standing in a place of worship. Maybe they're um, even quoting Scripture. And whether they're Republicans or Democrats or capitalists or progressives or independents or libertarians, uh, beware that you don't follow a substitute Savior, military saviors, economic saviors. Listen, the point is this. In the times that are the hardest, there will be people lined up offering to lead you out of your trouble. And we are foolish if we turn to any other Savior than Christ. Here's the third sign. It's mentioned in verse 9. And when you hear of wars and tumults or conflicts, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, and the end will not be at once. Verse 10, And He said to them, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. The third sign of the second coming of Jesus Christ is ethnic conflict and clashing political kingdoms. We see this very familiar phrase, nation will rise against nation. The word nation there in our English translation is actually the the Greek word ethnos. Another way to translate that is one ethnicity will rise and have conflict with another ethnicity. Those of different ethnic backgrounds will have trouble getting along and they will exercise injustices against one another and there will be hate and there will be conflict and Jesus says that's a sign of the times and then he mentions these kingdom and those are more political kingdoms maybe more geo political you know with geopolitical boundaries and and that's where we Think about actual nations and and people groups that are actually invading and conflicts. And so those things not only will be the signs of the end times, what I've told you earlier, those have been signs throughout history. It's been true ever since the beginning of history that Cain killed Abel and there was a struggle and a power struggle and a hatred. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And we've seen, obviously, even in these days, this is the biblical definition of racism, nation against nation, one ethnic group against another ethnic group. The evil of racism has been in the hearts of men since the beginning. It will persist as an evil until the end. And until Jesus comes, we should denounce it. We should pray against it. We should repent of it. And we should long for the return of Christ to completely eliminate it from the face of the earth. But even in these days when we are lamenting nation against nation, people group against people group, understand this, Jesus is predicting that there will be conflict among men until He returns. There's no amount of education, there's not a political solution, there's not a way to be nicer to one another that will ultimately fix what's broken in our hearts that allows us to hate another person and to cling to our power. We need the Lord Jesus to come and come soon. Here's the fourth sign of Jesus' coming that He mentions, and it's found in verse 11. There will be earthquakes in various places, and famines, and pestilences. Another word for that is pandemics. And there will be terrors and great signs in the heavens. So the fourth sign of Jesus' return are life-threatening pandemics, Earthquakes and famines. Chaos. In case you haven't been watching, the coronavirus has now killed over 100,000 people in the United States alone, almost a half a million people, uh, half, a, half, a, uh, half a billion people worldwide, half a million people worldwide. And this is just the cases that we know about. And, and it's amazing that with all of our medical technology and everything we have to protect us, that Jesus predicts that we are still going to be vulnerable to microorganisms that are one billionth of our size that can take our life as much as we'd like to protect ourselves. It's a sign of the end times. And then a fifth sign he mentions in verses 12 through 19. He says, But before all this, and notice he's not giving these in sequential order, he says, Before that, he says, They will lay your. They will lay their hands on you, and they will persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how you will answer. For I will give you a mouth." "...and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict." Verse 16, "...you will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. And you will be hated by all men for My namesake, but not a hair of your head will perish." By your endurance, you will gain your life. So the fifth sign of the end times is the revoking of religious freedom. And that once which was tolerated, the free preaching of the gospel, will no longer be tolerated. And so it's a sign of the end times. Now, up to that point, let me just summarize those five signs for you just a minute. Do you realize what Jesus has just done for these disciples? Remember, they're expecting things to change immediately. They're expecting Jesus to take His rightful place on the throne. They're expecting Jesus to make their lives easier because they're going to conquer all of their enemies. And Jesus just told them, guys, it's not going to be like that at all for a long time. He's basically telling them the way things have always been are the way things are going to be. There's going to be conflict in humanity. There's going to be disease. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be places where there's famine. There's going to be clashing political kingdoms. There's going to be people claiming to be able to fix it. And Jesus is basically telling them, life's pretty much going to continue as it has been because the world's under a curse and it's broken and fallen and you're a part of it. So don't get real comfortable. Life's not going to get much easier. Now, there's one more sign here that is yet to happen. As far as I can interpret this, and it's it's difficult, but notice what he says here in verse 25. He says, There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on earth. So you got things happening up there that are strange, and you got things happening down here that are strange. And on earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and the waves, people fainting with fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And what he's predicting here is that the most predictable things, the most stable things, the things that seem to work like clockwork. The earth revolves around the sun, the moon revolves around the earth, and everything just kind of goes on like it always has. But Jesus is predicting there's going to come a time when something's going to rattle, something's going to be out of kilter. In other words, there's going to be a destruction or a deconstruction of the created order. And Jesus is predicting something cosmic here. And as far as I know, I don't know that there's a whole lot of changes that have happened in the sun and the moon, the waves. I don't know if there's going to be mass flooding or there's going to be eclipse or there's going to be something that's going to change the seasons. I don't know. But Jesus is going to be different. And He says, when you see that, then, verse 27, is what we've all been waiting for. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up. When I hear that, I always think of my mom when I was misbehaving. She'd tell me, straighten up, like I was crooked, right? So that, that's a good sign for us, too. Straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near it's interesting that it says here that you'll see the Son of Man it's an Old Testament reference that is found in the book of Daniel Daniel's very prophetic book Jesus adopted that title for himself he's like the things that you read about it Daniel that's gonna happen and you're gonna see the Son of Man coming in a cloud Notice it doesn't say He's coming on a cloud. Jesus doesn't need a cloud vehicle to float down out of heaven into earth. What He's referencing here is the cloud of glory that would have been very familiar to a first century Jew because He knew what was written about Solomon's temple. When Solomon dedicated the temple and he prayed, the Scripture tells us that there was a great cloud that saturated the temple. It was so thick that the ministers could not even minister. And it was a picture of the personal manifest presence of God, known as His glory. And Jesus says, you remember that picture? What's going to happen when Jesus comes to establish His kingdom on earth... It's going to be, once again, the meeting place between God and man. God's space and man's space, once again, is going to be reunified. It's a picture of the coming of Jesus Christ. So those are the signs. Now, listen, people have written so many different interpretations of those signs, and most of it's speculative. Don't ask the Bible to answer questions that the Bible doesn't answer. We can speculate about those things. My point is this. Any eschatology, any teaching on the end times that creates a sense of fear in you is bad end times teaching. Because notice what he tells us in the application portion. After he tells us what it's going to be like, he tells us what we're supposed to be doing while we wait. The the teaching about the end times is not to predict what it's going to be like when He comes, it's to tell us how we're to perform until He does. How we're supposed to live now. So let's talk about these five things He tells us to do while we're waiting. How are we supposed to live until Christ returns? Number one, don't be terrified. He says that in verse 9, He just simply says, do not be terrified. And then he lists all these terrifying things that we're going to have to see while we're waiting. And that's the paradox, right? As a believer in Christ who has security and a hope of heaven, we know that we're not going to experience the judgment of God. Romans chapter 8 tells us, There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus Those who should be terrified are those that have no assurance that they are in Christ. In verse 18, I love it when he says, yeah, they're going to drag you into prison. Some of you are going to lose your lives, but not a hair of your head is going to be harmed. Isn't that amazing? That my soul is secure even though my body may have to endure some pain and suffering. And, and I realize I am talking to 21st century American comfortable people. We have climate control in our nice churches and padded seats, you know, and, and we drive to church in our minivans that are, you know, so nice. And, and you know, if, if, if we can't get the right fast food or it takes too long in the drive-through, we complain about suffering and, and wonder if they saw and they, they recognize maybe we're Christians and they're mistreating us, you know, we're being persecuted. So, listen, the reason why this is so hard to digest for us is because we don't have categories for this kind of hardship. But our other brothers and sisters in Christ that lived through other centuries, like the first century, remember Luke immediately finished his gospel and wrote a history of the first century church, and what he wrote was the exact fulfillment of what we read would happen to these believers in Christ. And so we don't have to be terrified. Those that have gone before us joyfully endured suffering. Now, if you've been saturating your mind with prosperity preaching and somehow been told that, you know, God would never allow you to experience hardship, you're going to have an incredible sense of terror and fear thinking about the future. But if you understand a right understanding of suffering, you're going to be able to endure to the end. The second thing Jesus wants us to do while we're waiting is don't be silent. Look here at verse 13. He says, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how you would answer, for I will give you a mouth. Some of you haven't been using your mouth to communicate the right message. He says not only do you get a mouth, you get wisdom. It's very dangerous to have a mouth if you don't have wisdom. So he's going to give us both. So we get a mouth full of wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Listen, the most hated message in the world is still the most needed message in the world. And in a time of chaos and crisis, we as Christians need to be using our mouths to speak into the darkness with clarity and wisdom. The gospel pierces through the political rhetoric. The gospel is the message that speaks truth to power structures. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for all those who will believe, whether Jew or Gentile male or female, black or white. It's the power of the gospel that we all need to hear. The gospel calls both progressives and conservatives to repent of sin. The gospel does not just create well-behaved, law-abiding citizens that are nicer to one another. The gospel pierces to the heart and exposes pride that actually fuels the hate and the clinging to power. The gospel exposes pride and self-righteousness. The gospel offers hope to a world that has nothing that can fix it. Therefore, use your mouth and do not be silenced. This is your opportunity. When things are at their worst, Jesus says... And don't just speak about injustice on a human level. Use your mouth to speak about the ultimate act of injustice in all of human history. Do you know about this? Do you know about it? One day, God the Father treated God the Son as if He had, cre- as if he had committed every act of injustice on the cross... God put the weight of my sin on the neck of Jesus and suffocated Him to death. And because He was treated as if He was a racist, God can treat me as if I am as holy and righteous and just as His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we call the doctrine of justification. And all Justice is rooted in a proper understanding of what happened on the cross, that all those who will repent and believe of any sin, any crime, any hatred can be declared righteous because Jesus was declared guilty. Have you been declared righteous in Christ? By faith, have you received justification? That is the gospel message. That is the mouth of of wisdom that the world needs to hear. So don't be silenced. Thirdly, don't give up. Look at verse 34. I'm skipping down a little bit here. Verse 34 says, "But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, that that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap." For it will come upon all who dwell upon the face of the earth. He tells us to watch ourselves. Watch your behavior. Watch to make sure you don't start making stupid decisions. He, he, He mentions here dissipation. The word dissipation means to throw off all restraint. It means to become a consumer of anything that would satisfy, any that would trigger and opioid hit inside of me and release some pleasure chemical and that would include overeating and overdrinking and and sex and consuming entertainment and partying and all of those are signs that you are living for the here and now because you have nothing waiting for you then and there so watch yourselves remembering that God is watching you and understand that there's going to be seasons That are gonna feel like a trap. The devil will use all of the temptations of this world as a trap so that he can grab you as his prey. Don't fall into the trap of living for here and now. Understand the soon return of Christ. Number four, we need to uh, don't wait too late. Don't wait too late. Verse 36 says, Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. He says, Wake up. Now, if this message and this passage has created a fear in you, it could be that you are you're still asleep. You're like I was. When, when I was... I'm um, 15 years old. I was an unbeliever, didn't go to church, never read my Bible. Someone invited me to go to a citywide evangelistic crusade. I went to the very last night, even though I was invited every night. I walked in to that rodeo arena in Lawton, Oklahoma. I sat there and listened for an hour and a half to a man named uh, Bailey Smith preach this passage of Scripture. At the end of that time, actually about halfway through it, I'm thinking, he he needs to get to the invitation because Jesus could come at any minute, and I do not want him to be preaching. I need to get down there. I need to give my heart, my life to Christ. I need to wake up to the reality of the soon return of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that Jesus is teaching all of this as a warning so that you won't procrastinate, giving everything you have, your sin, your shame, your future, your life, your wealth, your family, to Him as your Savior. Please hear me. There will be no escape from the judgment of Jesus after the return of Jesus. And He is coming soon. So come to Jesus before Jesus comes in judgment. Return to Jesus before He returns to earth. And in your heart of hearts right now, you can surrender to Christ. And if you will, pray as it says, praying that you may have strength to escape. The reality is you have no internal strength. You need a strength that comes from the outside in the justification of God to enable you to believe that Jesus is the Christ and the coming Savior of the world. If you've never done that, turn from your sin. Turn from every other substitute Savior. Put your faith in Jesus Christ so that you can escape the coming judgment upon this world like I did in 1982. He finally did get the invitation. I was the first one down the aisle, stood there, didn't know what was going to happen next. A man took me back in another room and he opened his Bible and he showed me how I could confidently trust Christ as my Savior. If you've never done that, do that right now. He's coming soon. Here's the last thing that we should do. Don't listen to wrong voices. Verse 8 says, See to it that you're not led astray. Verse 33 says, Heaven and earth will pass away. thats I don't know about you, I'm expecting that to happen. I'd really like this earth to pass away. It's not going real great. But there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. But listen to what He promises. My words will not pass away. He wants us to listen to His words. And here's, here's the great ending of the whole story. Jesus wraps up His comments. And then Luke adds this final statement. Verse 37. Every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet, and early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. It was the picture of heaven and earth coming together. Very soon, that building was going to be destroyed, but the eternal meeting place between God and man would endure. His name is Jesus. After this, Jesus never taught in that temple again. Within just a few days, He was going to give His life on the cross for all those who will believe. But here's the good news. For all of us who know Christ, Jesus is still teaching us in the temple of our hearts and every morning we rush to him for assurance so that he can continue to teach us how to live while we wait and we confidently expect that he's coming soon do you have assurance that when he comes he's coming to give you an eternal place in his presence if not The only other option is you're going to be eternally separated from Him in a place that's described as a a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. You don't want that. Come to Christ before Christ comes again. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank You for the clarity of Your Word. Thank You for courageous men like Luke that wrote it down. Thank You for apostles like Peter and John and those that lived out incredible times of persecution so that we could have a copy of Your Word. And today, even through the means of technology, we await not only to meet together, we wait expectantly to meet with You. I pray right now for a friend that may be listening, maybe somebody I've never met, Would you enter into the private places of their heart? Would you convict of sin? And God, would you create a great expectant hope of forgiveness? Thank you for becoming our substitute on that cross. We long for the day when you will come and take your rightful place as King in a new heaven and a new earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.